This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. And hello, folks, and welcome to Worship with West Concord. Glad you could join us today. We're going to continue our study in the book of Malachi as we look at the fourth oracle. If you remember, we said the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the last prophetic word before Christ, it was constructed by using oracles. There are six oracles in the book of Malachi, and an oracle is a burden. It's a burden that God gave a prophet that it was necessary for him to communicate. And so we're going to see the fourth oracle. We've already looked at three. We're going to see the fourth one. We're going to talk about something that is getting more prevalent today, especially in our current situation with the pandemic and the pandemonium around us. And that is the uh, problem of cynicism. Cynicism. People are asking, where's God? Where's God in all of this? Maybe you've caught yourself asking that. I'm going to be transparent with you. I've caught myself asking that same question. And so we're going to look at Malachi today, and we're going to see how God dealt with that among his people then, 400 years before Christ, only 100 years after they emerged and were delivered from their captivity. And as we dig out from our captivity, as we go back to work, I know we've had some drawbacks and pullbacks, but as we slowly emerge from this captivity, we want to make sure that we don't miss the message within the misery. And that is God trying to change us, to transform us, to make us, make us something that we weren't before, that we need to be now. And so we're going to look at this in the book of Malachi. I want to begin as we, as we get into this by talking about cynicism. And it's been said that a cynic is someone who believes that people are motivated purely by self-interest and that as a result, no one can be trusted. Cynicism shows contempt for human nature in general and displays a large measure of distrust. And so these are the concepts of, cyn of cynicism. He goes on to say, because cynical people are full of disdain for their fellow man. Christians should not be known as cynics. And as I said before, cynicism is, is a growing characteristic in today's world and unfortunately in today's church. Because as we see the COVID situation ebb and flow, and as we hear government mandates, and as we see people's opinions, and as we see price gouging and all sorts of other things, we're getting more cynical. Not only that, but as we see the racial uh, unrest and the riots and all of those things and the ugliness that's on social media, uh, not just in the world, but among Christians, we're becoming more cynical even against our brothers and sisters. And, uh, and as I said before, I'm going to be transparent with you. I've in, in a way allowed cynicism to enter into my life. But as I've examined this passage and, I've been, and as I've been praying for this message, I've become quite convicted about my own cynicism. Now, I'm going to continue to be a realist because I believe God wants us to look at the world the way it really is through his eyes. But we need to be careful that we don't treat our fellow man or our brothers and sisters in Christ with disdain, never trusting the motives and motivation of anybody. And let me tell you the even worse aspect of cynicism as we look at this, and that is the cynicism toward God. We need to make sure that we are not cynical toward God because that's the biggest problem 
that Malachi's people were involved in. In other words, the worst kind of cynicism, even worse than just what we think of cynicism, the worst kind of cynicism doubts the motivations, actions, and promises of God. In other words, God, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? Aren't you here? Aren't you hearing me? Do you even care about me anymore? Do you even care about this country? The worst kind of cynicism doubts the motivation, actions, and promises of God, and it's that kind of cynicism that will ultimately rob us of our hope. And that's what was going on with the children of Israel. They had been back in the land, they had grown lax, they had grown lazy spiritually, and because of that, God was again pulling His blessings, as we've already seen, away from them. And they were becoming cynical about that. They were saying, well, where is God? And God was getting tired of it. So as we begin to open God's Word, let's, be, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer and seek His face so that we might also find hope. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for the privilege and ability to meet this way today. Thank you for all those who are watching and listening today. Lord, for whatever reason, either they're not able to come to church, Father, or just something has gotten in their way, I thank you that they've tuned in. I pray that they not only tune in, but hang in through the whole sermon, that, Father, we might see your word and grow together. Father, we've been cynical lately because of all the mess that our world is in. We've begun to doubt our fellow human. We've begun to doubt even you, Lord. And we've grown, we've grown very cynical. Help us to be redeemed from that and help us to see the world as you see it, but also help us to love the world as you love the world. Bless us as we open your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the worst kind of cynicism is cynicism against God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go to Malachi chapter 2, where we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. And in Malachi chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 17. And we're going to see in this passage the cynicism of God's people. Again, they'd been back from captivity for about a hundred years. And over that time, rather than grow more grateful to God for His blessings and deliverance, they had begun to grow cold toward God. Now, they weren't chasing idols and demons like they were before, but they were just growing complacent, lazy. They were being normal. And God wanted them to be extra, something special. He wanted them to be His people and to love Him and to honor Him so He would bless them so that they might be a testimony to the world. So we see in this oracle, the fourth oracle, the cynicism of God's people. And it says, number one, it talks about God's weariness. This is interesting. Verse 17, uh, Malachi charged the people under the inspiration of God by saying, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now stop there for just a second. They have wearied the Lord with their words. In other words, God's weariness is what he's pointing out. Now understand this. God is God. As God, He never changes. He's almighty, all-powerful. Technically speaking, God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get weary. This is what is called an anthropomorphism. Well, that's a big word. But what it means is ascribing human qualities or, or animated qualities or material qualities or characteristics to God as a deity. It's like when the Bible said God sees us with His eye. God is spirit. He doesn't have material eyes like we do. Or God holds us with His right hand. Uh, God doesn't have a right hand. God the Father is spirit. 
another place in Psalm 91 and verse 4, it says, we should come under the wings of God and hide beneath his feathers. God is not a chicken, okay? God has allowed these things to be ascribed to him or he ascribes them to himself to help us humans understand his viewpoint and understand his heart from his perspective as a deity. And so we ascribe these human characteristics, these material characteristics, just like this. God gets tired of hearing us whine. They are wearying God with, with their words. In other words, they're saying it over and over and over again. And imagine being God blessing the children of Israel over and over and over again throughout their long history uh, and then constantly turning their backs, constantly complaining, constantly tiring. And so God's patience can run out. And they were wearying God in that way with their words. And they asked the question you're probably asking, uh, in what way have we wearied him? And here are the words, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Oh, where is the God of justice? What were they saying? They were saying, look, we're God's people, but it seems like God is blessing the evil around us. It seems like nations and people around us are doing well, they're prospering, they're being enriched, and while we're suffering, well, part of the problem was they were walking away from the hand of God, the providence and protection of God by growing lazy and complacent. And yes, God was pulling away from them. Just like I believe today, he's beginning to pull away from the United States of America. Now understand, I know people say, well, we're a Christian nation. Let me correct that. We were a nation found, founded rather on Judeo-Christian principles, but we have never been a quote, Christian nation although we have always respected and we've always tried to follow Judeo-Christian principles. But over the last six or seven decades, we have begun to slip away from that. It seems like the further along we go, the faster we're doing it. We are becoming, and especially the church in America, is becoming more like the people in Malachi's day all the time. And so the people's words, they were saying, look, you bless all these evil people, and yet what about us? Where are you, Lord? Aren't we saying that today? Listen, as the COVID virus is hitting and as all the swirl and pandemonium in the streets and protests and political corruption and infighting, and, and you're saying, wait a minute, why is this happening? Where is the Lord? Doesn't God care anymore? Doesn't God value us anymore? What's God going to do? Where is God in this? We've become cynical against God, just like the people of God did in Malachi's day. And so when we become cynical against each other, that's one thing. It's, it's sinful. It's wrong. We become bitter and hateful. But when we become cynical against God, not only are those characteristics in play, but also we begin to lose our hope in God. And I think the biggest problem today is we've grown so cold and complacent that we put our hope in a country or we put our hope in a political party, or we put our hope in a politician. You know, everybody hopes so-and-so wins in November. Uh, whoever wins in November, God is still God. Whoever wins in November, he is still sovereign, he is still king. Our hope should not lie in a politician or a nation or our material blessings. Our hope should lie in God. Our hope should lie 
in God. But when we become cynical of God, when we start doubting His care, we start doubting His compassion, where are you, God? And we ask it with a bit of contempt in our voices. We need to be very careful because we will fall into being cynical against God. Now, as we continue on, we're going to jump into chapter 3. It's the very next passage. And uh, understand this about the Bible. The verse and chapter divisions were not in the original uh, scriptures. They were added later to help us to guide through it and to know where we need to go for references. And sometimes those chapter divisions and verse divisions might have been misplaced. And they probably were here because it sort of cuts the message off. But as we've seen the cynicism against God, we see the certainty now of God's promises. God's wanting them to know, listen, you say, oh, where is the God of justice? How come, there, where's the fairness? Where's God in all this? God's going to answer. And we're going to see God answer in chapter 3 and verse 1. We see the certainty of God's promises. Look what he says. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He is the last prophetic voice before the time of Christ. It would be 400 years before the nation of Israel would hear another prophetic voice. And this is the prophecy of that time, because here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he's talking about John the Baptist coming on the scene in four centuries. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And he's speaking of John the Baptist. How do you know this, Pastor? Well, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, quotes this verse from Malachi in reference to John the Baptist. So here Jesus himself, in Matthew 11, applies this passage to John the Baptist. So we know that now Malachi is going to share God's promises of hope. Listen, God hadn't forgotten about his people. Just like when the nation of Israel was captured and enslaved by Egypt. And yes, they cried and prayed for four centuries then. God didn't forget about them. God sent Moses eventually as a deliverer. And God wanted to let Israel know, yep, you've grown cold, you've grown lax. And because of that, I pulled my blessings away, but I haven't forgotten about you. You want to know where I am. I'm still here and I've got a plan and I've got promises. And number one, I'm going to send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. You know, Jesus, the Lord God, 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 the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, they are one. So this is talking about Jesus first coming, his first advent. Now, in the Old Testament, we they had what we call mountain peaks of prophecy. Now, the Old Testament really didn't spend much time, hardly at all, in prophecies about the church, other than to say that the Gentiles would be willing recipients of God's word. We saw that back in chapter one, where remember he said he would shut the door on the nation of Israel and open the door on the Gentiles on the world to let them have the gospel. That's, that's sort of a, a, a very, very veiled reference to the church age. But in the Old Testament, generally, the Old Testament prophets kind of lumped the first and second comings of Christ 
sort of into one vision or one drama or one moment, if you will. Even though the first coming of Christ and his second coming of Christ, at least thus far, has been separated by 2,000 years. So we see in the first part of verse 1, he's speaking of John the Baptist, the coming of John the Baptist. But now he's going to zero in on the coming of Jesus, whose way John the, John the Baptist is going to prepare. He goes on to say in verse 3, And the Lord whom you seek, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. That title is only used once in the Bible, and it's used here to refer to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, the messenger of the covenant. In other words, the one who will bring the new covenant of Israel, the new covenant to God and his people. That would not only encompass Israel, but the whole world as well. He said, in whom you delight. Now, God, uh, looking at the Hebrew, he's being a little sarcastic here. Because while they're not delighting in God as a practice at the moment, they're all pining for his coming. He said, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And, you know, we're that way today because on social media and at church and listen, I hear people say all the time, oh, maybe we're in the last days. Maybe he's going to blow the trumpet and we're going to be raptured out soon. And you know what? That would be fine. That would be great. I can't tell you that that's coming anytime soon. Maybe it is. I believe that the world has been staged for the last days, but I don't know when the rapture is going to happen. The Bible says not even the Lord knew. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27 relate the fact that even the Son doesn't know the exact time. The Father is yet to reveal that to him. But maybe we're in that time. Maybe we're getting close. And, you know, many Christians, they live half-hearted lives for Christ. They don't give them their 100% like he's already chided the people in the earlier parts of Malachi. But they pine away for the second coming of Christ. And what I want you to think about is this. Yes, we want to be delivered from the sinful world to the glorious estate of heaven. Yes, it's going to be better. Yes, it's going to be wonderful. But there are also some other issues coming with that as well. And so we see him giving these promises. We see the certainty of God prom God's promises. Yes, he hasn't forgotten about them. There is hope. And he wants to cure their cynicism. Look, I'm going to send a messenger who's going to proclaim. He's going to be the next prophet. He's going to proclaim my coming. And then the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come to his temple. And again, he's lumping the first coming and second coming together because he's going to be coming in judgment. Where we sit as different from Malachi, Malachi and his people were getting ready to experience in 400 years the first coming. Jesus is suffering savior. But our experience is going to be Jesus as the conquering king. And that's what Malachi is going to focus on here as he looks at the big picture of the, of the drama of Christ. So next we see the clarifying of God's purpose. Because we think that the rapture and the second coming of Christ is going to be all puppy dogs, flowers, roses, and fresh bread. We think it's going to be great, and oh my goodness, I can't wait till the Lord comes. And yes, we should look for that. We should, you, we should yearn for that. But understand this, when the Lord comes back, it's not just to pat us on the head and usher us into heaven for all of our wonderful enjoyment. I want you to notice, first of all, He's coming to purge. Notice He talks about the second coming, and He says in verse 2 of chapter 3, But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. 
He will sift as a refiner and a purifier of silver. A refiner's fire was a fire that was so hot that the refiner would take precious metals. They do this today, gold and silver and precious metals, and they get them so hot that they burn away the impurities. They burn away the dross, as it were. And so when you get a gold ring or you buy gold earrings or silver necklace, that has been refined and purified through a, a process of extreme heat and pressure. And this is what second coming is about. This is what Jesus coming back is, is about. It's not all going to be Skittles and fun. Understand this, when Jesus comes back, there is going to be a time of judgment. For the believers in Jesus, yes, we're going to be raptured out one day, maybe soon. But understand this, when we go to heaven, we are going to stand before what is called the judgment seat of Christ. And he is going to look at us. We talked about this last week. We will stand before judgment and the judgment of God. And he is going to judge our lives as believers. He's going to judge us on how we spent our lives. This is what Malachi wanted these people to know. Listen, you want him to come back so badly, but you're not living as though his coming is something you're going to enjoy. You know, I have a sermon that I preach sometimes in the book of Revelation called Three Reasons Why Most Christians Won't Like Heaven. And it's simply because heaven is going to be dominated by the person of God the Father. It's going to be saturated with the presence of God's Spirit. And it's going to be animated by worship and praise. You know, you talk about that. We don't want our lives dominated by God now. Heaven forbid God mess up our, our plans, our future. We don't want to have to worship because we barely get to church when church is open. And as far as animating us to sing and shout, there are some people who say, oh, I don't like all that loud music and shouting in the church. Listen, I don't know why Christians think they're going to like heaven all that much because they're not thrilled with tastes of it here on earth. He says, who can endure his day of coming? Who can endure it? And who can stand when he appears? Because believers, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then ultimately all the world, the unsaved, the lost world, later on in God's prophetic plan will stand before the great white throne judgment. None of us is going to escape judgment. And he is coming to purge. That justice and judgment is going to purge us of the sin and of the dross and laziness. Yes, our sin has been paid for on the cross, but we will have to give an account for how we spend our lives in heaven. Again, the judgment seat of Christ will not determine heaven or hell. That is determined when you receive Christ as your Savior. But it will determine our rewards. It will determine our status in heaven. And understand this, the Bible says that later in the book of Revelation that there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in heaven for a period. Because when we're faced with the reality of what we haven't and have done, we're going to be struggling with that. Yes, God will eventually wipe every tear from our eyes. But man, alive, it's not going to all be Skittles and fun when we get there. Not only is he going to pure, purge, but he's going to purify. He says he will purify, in verse 3, the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And by the way, God doesn't just do that at his second coming. He does that in life as well. God chastises his people. He disciplines his people. Listen, I believe in my whole heart, that's what we're going through now with this virus and the violence that is all around us. We are being purged by God, perhaps. 
And that's why I'm preaching through the book of Malachi. Again, it's not to whip anybody. It's not to beat up the church. This is preventative medicine. So we can see the hand of God. We can lean into God's purifying and purging so that when he does come, if it's soon, he finds us where we need to be, not where we should have been. And so we have, we have the understanding and the clarification of God's purpose. As a matter of fact, God's entire purpose is to purge humanity and the earth of sin so that we might be restored as we're going to see in a little while. So he's coming to purge and he's coming to purify. Not only that, but he wanted to tell them about the consummation of his plan. What is God's plan as he does this? Well, look at verse four. Here's God's plan. And this is how he's going to consummate it. It says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. Right now we're sinful. Right now we struggle with sin. And often, even though God gives us the spirit he gives us his word. He gives us instruction and guidance. We still turn toward the word, world rather, more than we turn toward his word. But when God purges us in this world, and one day when we stand before him, then the offering of our lives, just like Judah and Jerusalem, we can relate to this today, it will be pleasant to the Lord. As in the days of old, as in former years. So he wants to reverse the effects of sin. That's the whole salvation story, is the redemption of humanity. It's rescue from sin. He wants to reverse the effects of sin. Listen, again, that's why we're going through what we're going through now. Because God doesn't want us to live the way we've been living. He does this on an individual basis sometimes, but it seems right now he's doing on an international and national basis. He's, he's, he's dealing with the world. And yes, it's hard, harsh, and difficult. But we need to lean into it and learn what he wants us to learn. Change what needs to be changed. Let go of what we've always held dear materially and embrace that which is spiritual. So he says he wants an offering that is pleasant to him. He wants to reverse the effects of sin which have polluted offerings ever since Adam and Eve. He also wants to rectify the injustices of sinners. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, and I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers. You know, what are sorcerers? These were people involved in magic, you know, and so forth. You know, we're so enamored with stuff like that today. We're enamored with Harry Potter, and we're enamored with all the uh, New Age stuff and the things like that. God says he hates witchcraft. He hates sorcery. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers. Oh, my word. What a, what a sexually messed up world we live in today. We are living in a world that is rife with perversion and sexual immorality. And uh, God is going to deal with that. Also against perjurers, those who bear false witness, those who lie instead of tell the truth. And those who exploit wage earners, widows and orphans. You know, those who by greed step on people. We live in an age of tyranny all the way since the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, all the way back with kings. And, and in the 20th century, we had great communist countries who were supposed to be egalitarian and fair. But in reality, the leaders lived like kings and the people were pushed aside. Some of the most egregious genocidal leaders 
have been in communist countries and in Nazi countries and fascist countries in the 20th century. Millions upon millions were killed for their fanatical ideas and for their greed. He goes on to say, against those who turn away an alien, unfriendly, unkind to strangers. And I'm not talking about, you know, some people will grab on that and say, see, we ought to open our borders and let all, no, no, no. That's not what it's talking about. Don't, don't go, go there because that would be a misappropriation of God's truth. He's talking about being kind and friendly and helpful to strangers, people that we don't know, and safely reaching out and helping those in need. He goes on to say, because they do not fear me. God is going to judge unjust sinners. We have a big movement of social justice today. Some of it's misplaced. Some of it's good, some of it's misplaced because it's got a lot of political baggage and misunderstood and malunderstood cultural baggage to it. We should stand up for justice against the impoverished, against the oppressed, against the discriminated against. But understand this, God is going to bring the ultimate justice. And if you feel like you've been wronged and you feel like somebody is getting away with something, let me, let me, let me clarify something. No one gets away with anything. It may seem like that. It may seem like the worst human being in the world lives and they die in peace. No one gets away with anything. And here's, here's even a worse kicker. Neither do you and I. I don't get away with anything ultimately. You don't get away with anything ultimately. We will all stand before God. So what should that do? That should motivate us to treat other people with justice, with dignity and kindness. That should motivate us to live lives of purity and spiritual cleanliness before Almighty God. Because we also will be judged. It's not, and listen, it's not us against them. It's God for us. But part of that is God's going to deal with us to cleanse us and to cleanse this world. And so he's going after these people. He's going to go after them. So he's going to reverse the effects of sin. This is the consummation of God's plan when he does come back. He's going to rest, rectify the injustice of sinners. And now he's going to reassure a future salvation. Now, you remember at the top of this passage, the children of Israel saying, well, where are you, God? What's going to happen to us? What's going on? Look at verse 6 as we finish up. He says, for I am the Lord. I do not change. And so what does that mean? It means the same God who inspired Malachi and delivered his message through him over 2,400 years ago is the same God that we serve. The expectations of God then are the same expectations of God and his people now. He says in verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob." Even though the nation of Israel, 400 years after Malachi, received and rejected the Messiah, they were still God's people. They are still today. The Jewish people are still God's people. And he will renew that status in times after the rapture, during the tribulation and after. But they are still God's people. They are God's wayward people. They are God's rebellious people. A large percentage of Jews in Israel are virtual agnostics at best, and some are atheists. It's amazing to know that and see that, but it's true. But God still loves them. They're still His people because through the Jews came the Bible, the written Word of God, and Jesus, the living Word of God. 
And God one day will reestablish the throne of David. He'll reestablish the remnant of faithful Jews. As a matter of fact, we as believers, Gentile believers, according to the book of Ephesians, we've been spiritually grafted onto Abraham's vine. And in a sense, we are spiritual Jews in that we have received the Messiah. And so God has a vision or a promise. His plan is to reassure a future salvation. So no, listen, you ask, where is God? He's still there. He's working out his plan, just like he did with the people in Malachi's day, just like he did with the people for the last 2,000 years, just like he did in ancient Israel's past. There are times of struggle, slavery, difficulty, oppression, sickness. But God brought those things. He allowed those things so that he might refine his people, so that he might renew his people and redeem, him, redeem them and draw them back to himself. And I submit to you yet again, I believe that is what God is doing today. That is why we are enduring a virus. That's why we are surrounded by violence. No, it's not pleasant. No, it's not fun. Yes, it is difficult. And yes, it is almost natural. It is natural to say, God, where are you? But it is spiritual to see him and to look for him in the midst of this. And not only see him and look for him, but live out what he's trying to show us. Ask him, God, what are you trying to teach us? Here's the bottom line as we look at the last couple of quotes here. He says, ultimately, the key to dealing with cynicism in our lives is Christ himself. We need Christ in our hearts to remove the anger, to dissolve the bitterness, and to make us a new creation. The ongoing prayer of the former cynic will be this. And again, I, I, I admit to cynicism in my life. I've allowed that to creep in and I, I hate it. And I have been deeply and duly convicted through this study of that. Here's the prayer I'm gonna be praying. I hope this prayer you're gonna be praying. It says, it's this prayer. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. In other words, we need to make sure that even in the midst of the darkest, most difficult times in our lives, rather than hurling accusations at God and cynicism, where are you, God? What are you doing? Don't you care? We ought to say, yes, where are you, God? But then we ought to seek him and find him. Because God is as close as Jesus Christ. God is as close as Jesus Christ through all that we've been going through and through things that I've been going through personally, there is a passage, and I've read it before, and I'll read it again, that I cling to, that I love. It's been my lifesaver. It's kept my cynicism from eating me alive. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. Now understand something about Jeremiah. He was living in the time before Israel's captivity when they were hell-bent on being hell-bent when they were chasing idols and the judgment of God was getting ready to come. And it was Jeremiah's job to tell them that. He was not very popular. But here's what he says in chapter 17, beginning in verse 7. He says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear 
when, it's, when the heat comes. And man, the heat has come, hadn't it? He goes on to say, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding its fruit. When God is our hope, listen, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, don't put your hope there. They're both corrupt. You say, oh, when all this COVID virus goes away and so-and-so gets elected as president and everything comes up, all it's going to be great. You know what? There are going to be more problems after that. We live in a fallen, broken world. And who knows when this is going to end? I don't want to be morbid or negative, but I, I don't know. As a matter of fact, all I have and all you have is right now. Right now, God must be our only hope. Right now, God must be our only joy. Instead of being cynical against God like the people of Israel were in Malachi's day. And, and what made them cynical? They got lazy spiritually. They denied the word. They didn't look at the word. They didn't read the word. They quit serving God. They gave him second best. They pushed God aside because they had better things to do. And then when God began to remove his blessing, they began to get upset. Well, listen, I believe God is beginning to remove his blessing from this nation because we have sat back church and we have allowed too much garbage to come into our culture. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to rise up. In recent weeks, I've heard about the silent majority that's supposed to rise up and make everything better. Could that not be us, church? It must be. And so I want to encourage you, instead of asking God, where are you, and shouting invective at him, step away from the spiritual apathy. Start doing the spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible study, fellowship as best you can in this COVID situation and sharing the gospel and look for God. See God's hand in all of this. See God's face. Turn toward heaven and instead of shaking your fist, hold out your hands in worship and desiring God. That's what we need to do. Quit being cynical and start trusting. You see, this is, this is, this is the whole thing. Is this, is, this whole picture is, is based on God's love for us. This is why he sent Malachi with this strident message, not because he hated Israel and wanted to throw him away. If he wanted to do that, we wouldn't be reading this book right now because Israel would have been burnt up. He still loved them and he still loves you and me. How do you know that, Pastor? How do I know that God loves me? Because he sent Jesus to die for you, God's son. John the Baptist told of his coming. Jesus came the first time. He was born in Bethlehem in a manger. He was, he was uh, a human being, but God at the same time. He lived a life uh, of a regular human, suffering the same ills that human, humans suffer, suffering the same difficulties. But he was God in the flesh. And because he was God, he hadn't sinned, did not sin. And even though he did not sin, he was crucified for our sin. People talk about life as unfair. The biggest unfairness happened to Jesus when he paid for sin he never committed. Yours and mine. He paid for our sin, past, present, future. He died on that cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again, became alive again to show they had victory over sin and death. And if you've never trusted him, he wants to save you. There's nothing you can do that can earn heaven. I'm not talking about religion. Religion can't save you. It's never saved anybody. I'm talking about entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith and trust in Him and only Him as your Savior. And God will save you and God will redeem you. And then God through His Spirit will then empower you to begin to allow Him to transform your life. So if you've never trusted Him, trust Him right now. If you do know Him, where is God? He's right here. He loves us and He's going to carry us through. But we need 
not miss the message and the misery. God bless you and we'll see you next time. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.